Well, welcome to Plodcast. Uh, well, I'm still happy about the name. Welcome to the Plodcast. I like saying Plodcast. Welcome to the Plodcast podcast. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, where, where, good night, whatever it is you're doing. It's good to have you here. Thanks for listening. I want to talk a, a little bit about um, the government school system. And I want to begin by talking about um, a woman in, in the ancient world named Cassandra. Uh, Cassandra was cursed or had a peculiar affliction. Her affliction was that she was a prophetess. She could foretell the future. And the curse was that she, when, when, when she foretold the future, whatever she said would come to pass and no one would believe her. So she would predict the future accurately. She would say what was coming down and it would come to pass. But when she predicted the future, her curse was she would not be believed. So what does that have to do with the government school system in, uh, in the United States today? Well, here's the problem. Uh, we have, I think it's charitable, I think it's fair and charitable and somewhat grim to say that our government school system, along with the rest of our culture, is actually circling the drain. Things are just going from bad to worse. They're, they're bad on an academic level. They're bad on a uh, moral level. They're bad on a cultural level. It's just a, it's simply a failed and failing school system. And all the things that we're grappling with, all the things that we're dealing with, are things that were predicted years before. These things were predicted long before. And when people made the predictions, they were laughed at. So, for example, in the 19th century, a Southern theologian named R.L. Dabney, in an essay on secular education, said this. He said, all Bibles, prayers, and catechisms will ultimately be driven out of the schools. He was predicting, no, so what happened was when the government school systems were first established, the, uh, the movers and shakers behind the, the system, men like uh, Horace Mann, were Unitarian, uh, not Orthodox, hostile to historic Orthodox Christianity. And they were driving for a government school system, a public school system, a common school system, as an outworking of their theology. But because the United States was a vast continent, because of the foresight of the constitutional framers, um, our form of government for the first century or more was highly decentralized. And what that meant was the Unitarian reformers could push for and succeed in getting established a common school system, a public school system, a government school system. But because we didn't have bureaucrats on every corner in those days, we have them now, but because we didn't have state boards of education running everything, because we didn't have massive, over, uh, overblown, swollen government agencies at that time, uh, the schools that were started, the public schools that were started, were largely run on the local level. And the local level was overwhelmingly evangelical and Protestant. So the, the local school board controlled the local school. The local school board controlled the local school. And in many locations of the country, those, those locales were very um, decidedly Christian, were decidedly Christian. So what you had was a system taking shape because, a, because of a progressivist agenda at the top and because of local control 
you had uh, evangelical Christianity controlling the schools at the bottom. And this created something of an optical illusion. You had a radical, you had a radical experiment that was the, the true nature of which was hidden from the people involved in it because they had this idea because they saw it happening in their local level of, well, we decide what goes on in our school. We, we are in control of our schools. They are our schools. Such that when there was a, in the 19th century, when we had a massive uh, influx of Roman Catholics from places like Ireland, the Roman Catholics didn't want to use the public school system. And they didn't want to use the public school system because it was the Protestant Bible that was used. It was the Protestant catechisms that were used. Protestant prayers would be used. So uh, the Protestants thought of the public schools as theirs, and the Catholics pulled away and formed their parochial school system because the Protestants had the government schools, and the Catholics, if they want decidedly Catholic education, will have to go the private route. So that's why Catholics built their school system, is because the the public school system was too Protestant. But the logic of progressivism was, the, the rot of progressivism was in the system. And uh, this is why Dabney, who thought in terms of principles, he didn't think in terms of surveys and bureaucratic re- reports. He saw the principles that were involved. And he said to the Protestants of his day, who said that the government schools are our schools, he said, all Bibles, prayers, and catechisms will ultimately be driven out of the schools. Now, I was born in 1953, and I went through the public school system, and I remember the school day beginning with prayer. We would acknowledge God, and we would pray to God at the beginning of the school day in the public school system. I still remember that very um, plainly, very clearly. But even old-timers like myself, when we look at that, we say, yeah, a bunch of us still remember prayers in the schools. It's rarer to remember Bibles in the schools, but virtually no one remembers the day when there were catechisms, Protestant evangelical catechisms in the public schools. Now, some people might say, well, do you have a problem with that? You know, well, there's a difficulty, there, there really is a difficulty using tax money to provide Christian education uh, for for parents. I have, I have a problem with tax monies going to support education, but I have much less of a problem if it's a Christian school. In the American system, the we have a um, we we are wary about separation of church and state, which we ought to be. But we have to be careful there, which I hope to address in another uh, uh, podcast sometime. There's a difference between separation of church and state and separation of God and state or separation of morality and state. So a Christian school that's tax-supported might have problems on, on the basis of what, is, what does biblical law teach with regard to a pro, an appropriate use of tax money. But it doesn't have the problem of attempted religious neutrality, which is what we've gotten to now. So the public school system was, in effect, built by evangelical Protestants and and established and was was thriving that way. And over time, the logic of the secularists who had planned and formed the system from the beginning began to work its way 
uh, into the system. And so now it's gotten to the point where the school system, uh, the government school systems are radically aggressively secular, radically aggressively agnostic and anti-God. Now, what does this have to do with Cassandra? Well, this has been something that's been approaching for a long time. This has been coming for a long time. And foresighted people, beginning, beginning in the 19th century, said this is where it's going to go. This is where it's going to land. I don't think all of them saw clearly how outlandish the secular system was going to be. But they saw that it was headed directly toward radical, anti-God, anti-Christian unbelief. And here's the irony. We've gotten to the point where that is plain to see. I mean, we've gotten to the point where our top scientists don't know the difference between a girl and a boy anymore. And we're so muddled and confused that we, want, we, we need special bathrooms for all sorts of people that are, shall we say, are challenged on understanding what it is that God made them exactly. We don't have a grasp on that. And so the government school system is collided with reality in this spectacular way. And even though all the predictions of all the naysayers over many years have come spectacularly to fruition in really gaudy ways, for many millions of evangelical Christians, they still don't see it. The prophets who've been prophesying doom have been Cassandra's. So uh, here we are, episode six, podcast number six, and we've come to our book review section. What I wanted to talk about this go-round was the abolition of man. Now, in an earlier podcast, I talked about that hideous strength, and one of the things you have to understand is uh, that hideous strength and the abolition of man were written at the same time, and they had the same basic thesis in view. That hideous strength is much longer, and it, it and it's, of course, it's a work of fiction, so the thesis is carried through the story. In The Abolition of Man, the thesis is articulated, spelled out, and argued for. It's a series of lectures that, that Lewis gave. So what is that thesis? If you're, gonna, if you're going to read That Hideous Strength, which I encouraged you to do earlier, you should also read it together with The Abolition of Man. The Abolition of Man argues that we don't pay enough attention to elementary textbooks. And Lewis takes a particular textbook to task for debunking trivial sentiment, for debunking value judgments, and not comparing that cheap value judgment to a worthwhile value judgment that is doing the same thing. Lewis says if they compared good writing with bad writing, good value judgment with a bad value judgment, they'd be doing something really worthwhile. But what they do is they take cheap and tawdry value statements and sneer at them or debunk them. And, and, and that process is something that can be applied to noble value judgments, uh, uh, value judgments that are written quite well. And so Lewis says that if you sneer at this sort of thing long enough, if you sneer at just sentiments long enough, what's going to happen is the end product of your system of education will be what Lewis calls men without chests. In a very striking passage, Lewis says that um, 
that basically we're conflicted. We laugh at iron, we we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and and bid the geldings to be fruitful. Basically, Lewis is saying we chop down the tree and then wonder where all the fruit went. A central part of education is to inculcate in the student just, noble, and righteous sentiments. So you've got the passions, the visceral passions, shall we say, in the gut. You've got cool reason in the head. But Lewis is arguing that we work on, we control our passions through sentiment, through the chest. We have to have some idea of what nobility is. Jumping over to that hideous strength, one of the protagonists is a professor at a university there, a sociologist, who is the end product of the kind of education that Lewis is attacking in The Abolition of Man. So Mark Studdick is the, the archetypical man without a chest. He is intelligent. He can follow a line of reasoning. He's educated. Um, and he's, he has appetites and things that he wants. But he doesn't have any vestige of nobility or um, noblesse oblige or duty or honor or sacrifice. None of that is in him or within him. And the reason it's not there is that he is the product of the educational system that Lewis was attacking in The Abolition of Man. The Abolition of Man is pretty deep, is pretty deep thinking. Some, some of it is philosophically intense. You might need to read and reread it, go back over it more than once, but it's a short book and well worth the time. If you want to understand what's going on in the world around you, and if you want to understand what's going on in Lewis's great novel, That Hideous Strength, The Abolition of Man is a book you should read. Well, let's continue our series on hamartiology, our study of sin, our study of sin in the New Testament. The New Testament contains two other words that are rendered as ignorance, agnoia and agnosia, agnoia and agnosia. The former is used to describe the sinful condition of the people when they went along with their leaders in the crucifixion of Jesus. The word is used in Acts 3.17. Idolatry was a condition of spiritual ignorance that God winked at, uh, referred to in Acts 17.30, and God overlooked that kind of ignorance for a time. This kind of ignorance is equated with blindness of heart, Ephesians 4.18, and results in a darkened understanding and results in alienation from God. The end result of this kind of ignorance is invariably is that it invariably leads to being trapped in some kind of lust. Christians are to be obedient children and are to reject their former lusts, the lusts the lusts that were allowed by their spiritual ignorance, as 1 Peter 1:14 puts it. So in this case, ignorance makes room, ample room for lust. We want to defend ourselves by saying, but I, didn't, but I didn't know. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. Well, obviously, if you are talking to a toddler and, and it, you discover in the course of your discussion with the toddler that he is ignorant of calculus, um, that ignorance is not blameworthy. He's ignorant of it 
He's ignorant of calculus necessarily. He doesn't have the capacity to not be ignorant of it. But there is such a thing as willful ignorance or culpable ignorance or ignorance that we make sure stays that way so that we have maneuvering room for our lusts. And, um, and this word, agnoia, describes that kind of ignorance. Ignorance also makes room for slander. With, re- with regard to agnosia, Christians are to live in a way that is submissive to the established civil authorities. And by doing good in this way, uh, Christians will shut up the spoken ignorance of foolish men, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.15. Foolish men want to say that submission to Christ is a revolutionary threat to the civil order. Now, it is a threat to the idolatries of the civil order, but it's not a threat to the civil order per se. And we have to make, we have to make um, a sharp distinction here. Many times when, when, when Christians go around preaching the gospel, when they plant churches, when they start Bible studies, when they distribute Bibles, when they go into North Korea, let's say, to, to do this or into a closed Muslim society, um, they, are, they are not bomb-throwing revolutionaries. They're not trying to overcome this, that civic order. Um, but what they're doing poses a direct threat to the idolatry, the central idolatry of that civic order. And oftentimes the people who are running that, that society know better than the Christians do that if the idol falls, if, if the temple falls, if the idol falls, the rest of that civil order, uh, at least as it's currently constituted, will not be far behind. So Christians target the idolatries of, of, ev- the idolatries of every civil order, but they don't target the civil order per se. But this kind of ignorance has never been the master of nuance. It's not a problem. This is not just a problem outside the church. This kind of culpable ignorance can take root within a Christian congregation. For example, Paul tells the Corinthians to guard against this. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15.34 So even within the church, some people might not have a knowledge of God that they ought to have. So Paul speaks it to the shame of the Corinthians. They don't know what they're um, talking about. They don't know what the liturgy means. They don't know what the hymns mean and so on. There are many baptized members of churches, certified pew warmers, who are ignorant of God and who need to be awakened to righteousness. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.